0: jump right into it. Lisa, you know, if you just want to tell us a little bit about yourself. It can be pretty blanket at first, you know, we'll dive into the cannabis stuff as as it comes up, but just you know who you are and how you've become um how you've gotten onto the political spectrum that you're on right now.
1: Sure, thanks for asking. So, my name's Lisa Savage. I'm running for the US Senate seat currently held by Susan Collins under ranked choice voting. I'm a Mainer. I was born in Bangor, Maine, and um went to college uh, at Bowdoin College, went to USM to get my teaching degree, and I'm just now retiring from 25 years as a school teacher in uh, central Maine. So I live in Solon currently, and um, my uh, husband and I together have five grown children and four grandchildren. And I have been very politically active in Maine, but as in terms of elected office, my experience uh, there is that I was the vice president and chief negotiator of the local bargaining unit of the Maine Education Association um, in the school district where I taught for several years. And, but most of my organizing has been around climate um, and uh, defunding the Pentagon in order to uh, fund the programs that we need to take care of people. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, a lot of people in Maine would know me as like an anti-war activist or a, a climate militarism organizer. Um, the Green Party, I was a member of the Green Party, and the Green Party reached out last summer to say, hey, it's a ranked choice voting race, this is the election that the Green Party nationally is going to really focus on because of the opportunity of ranked choice voting, your name keeps coming up, would you be interested in running? It was not what I was planning to do, I had planned to work one more year as a school teacher before Mm -hmm. retiring. but. Um, After talking to my family members over the summer and some of my political associates that I really uh, trust and know, everybody felt like, you know, Lisa, you could really be doing a service if you would agree to, you know, take this on. It's been a really interesting learning experience to run an electoral campaign. Um, It's really a team sport. I'm the spokesperson, but there are, you know, more than 100 people basically behind me doing various jobs on the team. Mm -hmm. We have amazing group of volunteers sam very. had
2: reached out to us and and i had asked sam if he had listened to the podcast before he said no but somebody who's within the group had heard about the podcast one
1: of our very active volunteers jeff <clears throat> uh, brought the podcast to our attention so um, i was able to visit jeff's farm about a month uh, no i don't know a couple of weeks ago he's got a bus we might be using for a bookmobile later on in the <laughs> election season <laughs> um, A
2: VW or a different type? uh, No, it's an
1: an international. It's a beast. (laughs) Oh, 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 okay. Yeah, Yeah, that's like a bus.
2: That's that's the kind of bus we were thinking we need, Evan. Um, (laughs) We
1: want to do a bookmobile and uh, give away books to uh, kids around when school starts. So we're we're looking at that vehicle. But wow, what an amazing farming operation he has going. So Mm -hmm. rice paddies. I've seen rice paddies in Japan, but I've never seen rice paddies in Maine before.
0: I didn't think the climate could work for it in Maine. That's pretty cool.
1: Really interesting. Is he
2: also up in the Solon area?
1: Uh, he's in Mercer.
2: Mercer, okay. Mercer,
1: Mercer okay. which isn't too, too far from Solon.
0: Oh, no, sure. I thought I was actually wondering, I was just thinking, where is Solon? Like, where? Like, and I've never heard.
1: Solon is north of Skowhegan. It's on Route 201. Mm-hmm. If you ever drew, drove to Quebec City, you probably passed, you might have blinked as you passed through Solon. Yes. Yeah. I head up it's
2: to uh, the Forks. My brother has some land out there. Yeah, it's before um, you get to the Forks. It Put is, it isn't that, it? Right See? before the it's mountains?
1: A, it's a farming community. Mm-hmm. Lots of growers, um, lots of uh, small family farms still. um, Is that where you were raised? uh, No, I was brought up in California, actually. My father was from Skowhegan, Maine. Mm -hmm. And I was born in Bangor and went to kindergarten in Bangor. And then we moved to California, where my mother was from. So I went to high school in Pacifica, California, and then came back to uh, Maine to go to Bowdoin College and um, left Maine again for economic reasons. I always loved Maine. Mm -hmm. My parents left for economic reasons. I was always looking to get back to Maine. Um, in 1988, my father died suddenly leaving an operating business. Um, and so my brother and I ran a small business in Skowhegan for seven years. And uh, I became a career change teacher uh, because I wanted to stay in Maine. I had children. And mm-hmm. uh, I, being self-employed was <clears throat> it's not great for everybody. It wasn't the perfect fit for No, it's not
2: as easy as... Um, you, I mean, there's uh, the opportunity to make all the decisions uh i suppose that's the attractiveness to a lot of people and then they realize making all those decisions is it can be a very
0: difficult thing false yeah. expectation of freedom i feel like mm-hmm. Sometimes.
1: it's very hard to keep a, a small <clears throat> business in maine afloat i think very very difficult just for me personally i didn't like the fact that every time the ice machine broke it was my responsibility <laughs> 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 i did a lot of the business side of things um you know i was raising my kids the school system in Skowhegan was really good and i was happy to be living there. So one of the things that people in Maine also might know me uh, uh, for more recently is the uh, battle to retire, the last native mascot, uh, school sports mascot in Maine, happened at Skowhegan High School. Mm -hmm. That's the high school that my dad had gone to, his dad had gone to, and a lot of my family members have attended that high school. So it was kind of a personal thing to me to say, hey, let's move into the 21st century We can still be Skowhegan. I have my dad's old letter sweater. It's a black sweater with an orange S. And I used to wear it to board meetings and go, do you see any Indians on this sweater? I don't (laughs) either. We're not losing our traditions. No, not at all. modernize and realize something that was once considered not terribly offensive is offensive now and Mm -hmm. the tribes have said we're offended by it so
0: so i think that that gets us to dive right into everything you know that's a perfect icebreaker there's a lot of people you know that's a big political issue right now is taking down monuments things like that some people on both sides call it, you know accused of virtue signaling in some sense of the only reason it's being removed is not just because of the belief or the offense but just because you know, the, their belief offends someone else. So like, that's the, that's like the theory behind it. What do you think of that? Why is it important to rectify those certain things? And is there any validity to the argument of maintaining kind of just, it? Yeah. That it's more so I, I and you know, this is just more so providing the devil's advocate. It's not necessarily, I, I try to stay neutral on all this, just, just for the podcast sake, but like a, you know, there are. That's a big argument that I hear a lot. Is oh, it's they don't really. People aren't really offended by it. It's just you know they just want it removed because it offends other people in the sense you know. So
1: right. Well, in the case of Native mascots, there was uh, research by the American Psychological Association showing that. Um, exposure to stereotypes harms not only the group that's being stereotyped, but harms all children. Because it basically gives them the message, bias is okay, stereotyping is okay, caricaturing a whole race of people is okay. Mm -hmm. And that's harmful, and Mm -hmm. it harms educational outcomes. Um, Here in Maine, the tribes had been asking um, the uh, high school to stop using that mascot and that team name for years, decades, saying our young children are upset by it. They go, how come they're treating us like an animal? You know, the first time that they see the Indian mascot and having to explain to their children what's going on there. So it was enough for me to mm-hmm. have my native friends mm-hmm. and uh, people that I knew say it's offensive. Right. It's harming our children's self-esteem. You know, that I, I can hear that. In the case of historical monuments, the argument gets more complicated because, of course, uh, most of those monuments are to people that have been dead for, you know, hundreds hundred years mm-hmm. there's a an, actually a monument in Bangor that the Bangor City Council is considering removing to a, a Portuguese navigator named Esteban Gomez he was a cartographer one of the first people to map the East Coast mm-hmm. but he kidnapped 50 native people before he headed back to Europe he was sailing under the Spanish flag uh, in intending to ins- sell them as slaves in Spain I think the Spanish King said what the heck are you doing and made him let them uh, go free, but there's a monument to him in a little park in downtown Bangor. Again, mm-hmm. like that's you know that's where I was born. That's my uh, mm-hmm. you know kind of origins. I didn't even know about this monument, um, but when people uh, talk about you know this is just virtue signaling. Well, I might believe that if um, you know uh, black people, for instance, the descendants of enslaved Africans in this country had anywhere near the net worth that the average white person has in this country, Mm -hmm. the generational poverty of not being landowning, uh, not being able to get access to equal education, it's huge. It's huge.
2: I think we've recognized that equality isn't necessarily, it hasn't been uh, evenly distributed, or it hasn't been equally earned in society. I think recognition has certainly come to light. In, uh, for a larger audience, a larger population right now, but we're still not taking action or, we, or, or we're taking more steps to get action accomplished or, or, or it's gonna have to come down
0: to policy, isn't it?
1: It is. And, I mean, I think it's,
0: I think what we, on a state level, I don't actually think it comes down to policy as weird as that sounds. It's just, this is just more of like an opinion because I think we've seen policy go it there needs to be like a massive cultural shift. And I don't think that can happen through policy. It can just happen through education and like people, like, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I've learned over the past three, four months that I think no one really knew, and it was, quote-unquote, it it could be wrapped under the whitewashing of history. You know, I never learned about the United Daughters of the Confederacy in history class. I never learned that they were the ones that went and erected those monuments all throughout the South. And really, there wasn't a lot of people that believed in it. They snuck these monuments in. They swindled government funding. Like, if you go through it, it was like a very very sneaky and manipulative uh, process to get these monuments brought up. And so when all these people are... You know, they're protecting their heritage. You know, sometimes I think, well, the heritage of Maine is that we, we defeated them, just so you know. So it's like, you know, if you're celebrating them, you're kind of celebrating a losing side. So it's just like it's, it's all these hypocrisies and stuff. And it makes me really think that I think the only way to understand it is through education. You know, people need to be educated more. And that goes back to what I think you were saying. You know, whenever we talk education, we hear, how are you going to afford it? But whenever there's a war... That's questions never asked, you know. That's the last question asked. So
1: true. For many years, I worked on looking at the federal budget. I, very few people in the U.S. know where their tax dollars go. When you look at the what they call the discretionary budget, so it's the budget Congress can spend each year. It doesn't include Social Security, Medicare, you know, <coughs> payroll tax, uh, dedicated programs like that. Um, it will show on the books as being about 55 56% of the federal discretionary budget each year going to the Pentagon. But really that is a a deflated figure because all the nuclear weapons and nuclear weapon development are hidden in the Energy Department budget Mm -hmm. (laughs) and Mm -hmm. the Veterans Administration is its own budget line. And I don't in any way want to unfund the Veterans Administration. Right, I think sure. that's largely health care and education, and there's no reason that people who signed a contract, did what they said they'd do, should not you know receive the benefits that they uh, agreed to. But it, to come up with a true price tag of what our military project uh, costs us each year, it would really be more like 70%. You guys probably have a household budget where you maybe set aside some money for rent and you set aside some money for food and set aside some money for car. How, what household would set aside 70% of the budget for a sec, uh, security system? It's mm. that's, that's absurd. Mm-hmm. It also isn't making us more secure. Terrorism has only risen under the war on terror. And really the biggest security threat facing us now is uh, climate crisis. Crisis. The mm-hmm. climate change is the thing that is the most threatening to life on Earth, and the Pentagon is a big driver of climate crisis. They're the largest institutional consumer of petroleum in the, on the planet. They consume, I've seen the figure vary between 70 and 80 percent of the fossil fuels that the federal government uses, the Pentagon is, accounts for 70 to 80 percent of them, you know. That's oh, wow. driving climate oh, crisis. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, it certainly is. So when we're taking 70% to that, it's like the entire budget, the United States, what they're spending for money, where they're spending it, 70% of it goes to the Pentagon. Do you know of that, how much of that budget would have to be eaten up to say if we were to do Medicare for all?
1: It's a good question. Um, medical uh, costs that we're currently at, how much it costs to deliver the pretty poor level of medical care that many people in this country um, are receiving, doesn't include dental, um, many people don't even have medical care, um, would... Uh, They say that that figure is inflated by about 30 percent because of the profit margin of the health insurance companies. So the administration and the 20 million dollar a year annual salaries that your um, insurance company executives earn, that's accounting for about 30 percent of the cost. Oh, wow. So
0: how do we go in? How does the system get unraveled? then? how does that it seems like I, I hear people talk about a lot. The medical system, you know, it's it's flawed, it's fraud, but no one seems to really do anything. It seems like it's very complex. It seems like when someone takes that next step to um, a higher level in politics, more money creeps in, more lobbying creeps in, and it almost becomes impossible. You know, it almost seems like it's gotten worse over the years, and every time we hear, it's gonna get better, it's gonna get better, and then it just, it gets worse, you know?
1: It, it does, because the people making the laws are taking money from the very corporations that pay the executives $20 million a year you know, if your Congress is owned by corporate lobbyists, then they're going to make laws that benefit corporations.
0: Right, Mm -hmm. so has it ever been, I, I, I guess, I I don't know, I feel like we maybe cut the legs out from underneath. Has anyone ever suggested that we... Is there a way to stop the money from flowing in from lobbyists? That seems to be the biggest way to stop the influence. You know, you look at the political system, and it does seem like, oh, America, you know, freedom and all this stuff. And it's like, well, but yeah, you just buy politicians to the left and to the right. You know, it's like basically just a more... yeah, it's just basically like a more civilized, developed world country in some ways. I might not be buying so
2: much as influencing, and I understand what you're saying. Well, yeah, uh, but same like thing, through, through donations demanding.
0: and stuff like that, and I think it's just like... I do think that there is a lot of like money that's tossed around, and, and like they, you, these people, one, they write the laws, they definitely can circumnavigate them, you know? So like, just like, if, if you think your accountant can find a tax loophole, these guys are finding donation loopholes and every loophole possible to make sure that they can get some money out of politicians or out of the lobbyists, so... I think like trying to unravel that web.
1: Well, as far as what to do, the most concrete thing that a person in Maine could do is rank me first in the election. As a Green Party candidate, I vowed not to accept or solicit corporate donations. I've already turned down a fairly sizable corporate donation, and I will continue to do so, because I can't say that I'm going to go to the Senate and represent the people of Maine if I take money from corporations that I will then owe my allegiance to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that has, you know, many, many candidates before me, and many candidates right now are running for Congress, and they're on a similar platform. They might be Green Party or or not, but uh, part of the problem is that when you have a uh, winner-take-all, first-past-the-post-electoral fa- system, the pro- um, power of propaganda, in other words, political advertising, is enormous. Mm-hmm. And the reason people use propaganda is because it works. Mm-hmm. So when your opponents have raised $40 million each and they are flooding the airwaves constantly with advertising, it's hard to break through that clutter. I'll I'll never compete with them and their media buy or their fundraising. We've managed to raise about $100,000 now in about a year of campaigning. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're not going to be able to buy a lot of television advertising or anything with that kind of money. Um, However, it's a ranked choice voting election. so
2: Which you were in favor of before this uh, became um, the new practice with electoral. Yeah, ranked
1: choice voting is a super good system. It has many benefits. One is that it makes for uh people don't have to vote for the lesser evil. Right now, when you have a two-party um, system where only the two corporate parties are fielding candidates, uh people are always told, well, you have to vote for the lesser of the evil so that the truly evil one doesn't get in. So this is basically voting your fears. In a ranked choice voting election, you can vote your values. You can say which candidate lines up the best with what I believe? I'm going to rank them first, and then I'll make that safer choice. I'll make that lesser of two evils choice for my second ranking, mm-hmm. and so on. And, and you can really vote for all the candidates in election if on a ranked choice voting if you want to, or you can just vote for one. People, uh, I think, are somewhat confused by ranked choice voting. They think they have to rank all the candidates, but you really don't. You could just pick one and leave it at that. Um, so,
2: But it's an option to have it. Uh, where you can go multiple I mean you could go the whole list correct you could and you like it and I think uh, in reading up uh, a little bit about it not only because it favors somebody who you want to vote for but the idea that we're we're running a two-party system a two-party country and it'll always be because of the funding that goes towards these candidates we're never going to be able to alter or make change that could come from other grassroots organizations like yourself, like the, like the Green Party.
1: Yeah, it's um, a definitely a, a, an area in which Maine leads. You know, Maine does lead. Our state motto is Dirigo, which is Latin for I lead. And in many ways, Maine has led politically in the nation. The whole rest of the country is looking at Maine this year. We're going to have ranked choice voting, not only in the US Senate race that I'm in, but for the first time in the presidential election. And, uh, you know, that is a game changer. So it it, uh, allows for more voice and more choice, which is more democratic. And um, it is a counterbalance to the effect. You know, the Citizens United ruling by the Supreme Court saying that corporations were people and that the money they spent on political advertising was political speech was very unpopular. Many people have said we have to overturn the Citizens United ruling to really get any control back into government. But overturning a Supreme Court, um, well, you can't really go to the Supreme Court. No, you, you can't. You to, no, it has you, you to be brought might up. You have to amend the Constitution um, to change that. It's uh, more viable to pass ranked choice voting and elect candidates that actually uh, uh, reflect what the people want to see. Um, rather than being a spoiler, my presence in the election as a strong progressive who believes in Medicare for all, believes in a demilitarized Green New Deal to tackle climate crisis and in the at the same time create good union jobs. Maine is always short on jobs. We, we definitely don't want to you know defund Bath Ironworks and have people be out of work, but if Bath Ironworks were building clean energy systems, economist research shows it would generate 50% more jobs. Than we have now at Bath Iron Works. So instead of six thousand jobs, there'd be eight thousand jobs or nine thousand jobs. Um, so those, if, the, if people believe in those um, progressive uh, platform issues, then they will come out to vote. And exit polls have shown that many people won't go out and vote for corporate <coughs> candidates. If if asked when they emerge from the polls, why are, you know who did you vote for and why are you here, they say well, there was a candidate here that I was excited about, so I came out to vote. In a ranked choice voting election, that's interesting because they might come out to vote for me, but then if they vote first for me, they rank me first, are they likely to rank Susan Collins second? Not very likely. Mm -hmm. Probably their second choice ranking is gonna go to one of the other independents or or the Democrat, Mm -hmm. right? And the same thing, if somebody votes for Sarah Gideon first, ranks her first, are they likely to rank Susan Collins second?
2: Probably. Very unlikely
1: more likely to give somebody like me the second ranking. So my presence in the race makes it more likely that we will unseat an unpopular conservative incumbent that many people in Maine feel has betrayed her trust with the, with the voters of Maine.
0: I think um, one thing too, that we, we, to circle back to education and kind of what you've been saying too, it's hard to, it's hard to have a, a debate or to talk with people now because the, it's been really put out there that anytime you don't like the argument, something like that, it's fake, you know, it's fake news, they're, you know, so how do I believe your source? And even if the source is accredited, you know, it could, it could be a peer-researched uh, paper, well, how do I know they're not being paid off? How do you think that destroys, like, the the, the true political system in the sense and, like, the, just being able to interact with people, like, if there is no, if there's no baseline for trust or truth, you know, if we start denying every expert, if we start, you know, it, like, I, I use the example a lot, I, I'd never... Uh, if, if a dentist told me I had a cavity, I wouldn't look at him and say, bullshit. You know, I'd probably say, yeah, you're right, you know? So I just, I don't know why why now all of a sudden it seems when it becomes to anything political, people just automatically flip the switch and decide, you know, it's, where's, what, what do we, how do we get to that baseline again?
1: Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I think information control has been the most potent political force of my lifetime. Um, now, when I was young, of course, Uh, we didn't question official information that was offered to us in the news media or our encyclopedia or our textbooks. And as you pointed out earlier, there was a lot missing from those textbooks. Mm -hmm. So I'm not really saying that we had all the information then. We didn't. People were more likely to believe authorities. With the advent of the internet, suddenly there was this explosion of information, and people became more... Uh, responsible for vetting their information sources and figuring out, should I trust? A lot of what we do in, in school, I'm sure, Carrie, you've taught this when you taught English at high school, is teach students how to evaluate uh, information, look for the sources, try to find out, you know, dig down and find out where is this information coming from. Um, most people honestly don't want to do that much work. So they pick a couple outlets that they feel warm and fuzzy about, and they rely on them information now that we've gotten into situations where the fossil fuel companies don't want us to believe that climate change is a threat to life on earth so they have put enormous uh, amount of resources into debunking the science the climate scientists were saying way back like you know in the '50s 60s 70s were' saying uh- oh you better watch out for this this global warming thing could get out of control um, but if a person's profits uh, depend on people not believing that, then you start getting, oh, that's a hoax, there's really no such thing as, oh, climate always, the weather always changes, who's to, you know, and so forth. Meanwhile, the sea levels are rising and flooding, um, you know, uh, many of the uh, Pentagon's military installations are right on coasts. Right? Oh, yeah, In Fort, Virginia, sure. The Atlantic yep. Fleet sea level rise global warming is already a huge problem for them they totally know it's a real thing because they're getting flooded regularly and they're realizing oh we're we gonna have to move this whole operation um what are we going to do but the information control that goes out there to tell people oh, don't believe the scientists you know doubt the scientists as we have seen it's had a huge effect on how the pandemic has been handled
2: oh yeah, <laughs> a yeah.
1: huge effect on mm-hmm. public health
0: well the simple thing is that i mean you know we you, it, yeah, it, there's just a, this, this, so much misinformation and there's so many people that are just getting their their information from like a Facebook meme or something like that. And it's like, you know, I, I feel like there's a lot of a simple Google search for the most time. And if you've like you said, if you've gone to say, uh, you know, even I think that we learned this and pr- pretty young, you know, just learning how to verify information, you know, you don't trust certain sort, you know, you can just t- just things that you got to go through. And um.
2: Bibliographies are, are what we used to have to source back when encyclopedias uh, were, were the main source sure before the internet. And so you needed to know where you were getting your information and, and we've lost that uh, but, connection.
1: But to play devil's advocate, the reason that we know that George Floyd was choked to death in the street mm-hmm. by a police officer is because some citizen had the courage to hold their cell phone up and record it. And we all saw that. Now, the person that recorded that, they're not any kind of authority figure. I can't really validate who they are mm-hmm. or what mm-hmm. you know. Are, is what my ears and my eyes are telling me true. Um, so in some ways, we have really benefited from the fact that the authority to dispense information is now really spread out. We all can be a citizen journalist if we choose to be. And here you guys are doing your podcast and deciding, hey, this is something that I want to do is gather information and put information out for people to use. So it's become more democratic. The mm-hmm. mass media have become more democratic. And I think that is why you will see the entrenched uh, power structures trying to discount media or information sources that they don't agree with. They're going to work really, really hard to make those seem like they're invalid and you shouldn't listen to them.
2: You had a good point. Yeah, very good point. Uh, You had talked about, and this is to circle back to it a little bit, how we've lost the trust in our information sources or or you have to validate your information sources. We've lost, uh, it, it became quite apparent when the internet came around um, five years in that the newspaper was going to start devolving and we were going to start losing investigative um, journalism. We were going to lose objective journalism or, or we had already kind of lost that. And going on the internet now, you, we've certainly lost our objective uh, objectivity. And, and, and it's hard to put that blame on an individual or a news source because they have their own agenda as well. So it's hard to find those people who are going to stay true to the course. Is it about staying on whatever path you're choosing and hoping that it'll, in a sense, that it appeals and it aligns to larger groups of people? Because climate change will be disputed by half of our friends. That's what I've noticed. And it's, so it's, it's almost one of those where if you can get 55% or 51% of the people to agree with you, you you've accomplished something to a great degree. Great deal. Have we lost that because of the extremes that are in both ends and the lack of?
1: It's hard to say exactly where we'll go from here. I do know that I think critical thinking is the main skill that I always tried to teach, whether I was teaching English. What grade was it, by the way? Um, We never asked you. I've actually taught from kindergarten through adults over 25 years. I was a literacy coach for several years, so I was doing professional development with the teachers Mm -hmm. about uh, their teaching of reading and writing. I started out as an elementary school teacher, so teaching all the subjects, but I spent a lot of time teaching secondary high school. I was a history major. Um, and then uh, my district needed me more as an English teacher, so as the years went by I, I taught uh, English more than um, uh, social studies. Mm-hmm. And then at the very end of my career I had written this, I had helped write a school improvement grant to create a reading interventionist position at a very uh, low income uh, rural elementary school. And uh, that we created that position. N- no one who was qualified applied for it. So the school leadership team kind of persuaded me to quit being the literacy coach and come be the reading interventionist. So I, I ended my career working with uh, very young children, which was a blessing because they love to see you coming. They run up and hug you. Yeah. They're so happy that you came to get them. And you know, working with uh, teenagers is a lot more challenging. In many ways, it's very fulfilling, and it's uh, one of my former students. She was in my my fourth grade class years ago came up to me at the Portland Farmers Market last week and said, Oh, Miss Savage, you don't recognize me, but you know, the, here's my name. I was your student in fourth grade. She said, every time you have an op-ed or a letter to the editor in the paper, my dad always goes, Look, this was your teacher. You need to read this. <laughs> so it's kind of fun for me to think that many of my former students are voting or old enough to vote Mm -hmm. and i I may very well get some votes from former students right that's kind of fun
2: yeah that
0: is so something um i want to dive into i've been kind of looking through the website your website yesterday and today and a big thing for mainers obviously is hunting and guns and stuff like that and i want to dive into a little bit of your gun control before we kind of shift gears to more cannabis related stuff sure um you know, just kind of, if you could walk through it a little bit, I, reading on it too, it says enact strong gun control measures that respect Second Amendment protection for arms for state level militias, not individual ownership of assault weapons. I know for like some people in Maine, like a lot of my friends would be extremely intimidated by that first sentence alone. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can break it down a little bit that's less intimidating and kind of goes away from the whole like no assault weapons and really breaks it down for people as like what you're trying to do.
1: Sure. Well, um- as a peace activist, you might guess that I'm not particularly keen on guns myself. But I'm married to a peace activist who's a hunter. He he's a very responsible gun owner. My husband. He takes our grandson hunting. Um, he was a he does pistol target shooting and was like first in his age class. And you know he's into it. So, um, and of course, almost all my neighbors are responsible gun owners. Mm -hmm. I live in the second district. It's not unusual at all for, Mm -hmm. um, you know, pretty young kids to learn how to use guns and so forth. So uh, I wouldn't be a good senator for Maine if I said, oh, everybody should be like me and get rid of all their guns and, you know, be... be Uh, radical pacifists like I am. That would not be representing the people of Maine very faithfully. Um, I do think that the Second Amendment, though, said a well-regulated militia was the purpose of allowing people to bear arms. So Um, I don't think that individuals who take an assault rifle and go and shoot up a school or terrorize a movie theater or a Mm -hmm. a church are a well-regulated militia. That does not fall within my definition of what a well-regulated militia is. So um, I do think that uh, the type of weapons that are only designed to kill large numbers of human beings are not... Uh, part of what I would consider that the Second Amendment protects. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, But I do feel that people, uh, again, my indigenous neighbors, my native, I'm not going to tell them how they can uh, pr- practice their traditional food gathering. You know, they, they hunt moose. My, one of my closest neighbors is Barry Dana, past chief of the Penobscot. He hunts moose every single year. Mm-hmm. Um, that's part of his culture. That's not with an AK. Tradition. It's far be it for me to tell him, oh, well, you can't use a gun to do that because I don't think it's I'm
0: but right. so
2: but what mm-hmm. do the, what it's do you part you, of the culture here and what do you
0: say to the people though that they, uh, the big counter argument that I hear and I, I listen to myself because I think I have some things they said if, if you cared and not not you in particular but this is the blanket argument that I hear is that if you cared about guns you would ban handguns because handguns account for a significant more amount of deaths per year like if you take inner cities like Chicago and stuff a lot of times these people aren't being killed with assault weapons They're being killed with handguns you know pocket style nine millimeters stuff like that. So w- what do you say that because I do hear it I think that also sometimes and don't get me wrong what happens with mass shootings is it's tragic but I, I also hear the fact of if gun violence is the issue in someone's eyes they should want to ban the thing that kills more people just because it's not necessarily displayed on the media you can look it up handguns overwhelmingly that's the murder is from handguns so I get that argument and what is the response to that.
1: Well, I do think that universal background checks need to be in place. There are a lot of loopholes in background checks now. Personal sales, for instance, don't need a background check. I also think that those kind of red flag laws where a family member or a a mental health care provider says, wow, this person is, you know, in danger of uh, harming someone. You know, maybe we better step in and limit their access to guns while they're in this crisis. You know, the leading gun death in Maine is suicide, and that is a pretty sobering statistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, lot of um, A lot of have, us know this. A fantastic. lot of people oh, that have PTSD for various reasons, maybe they've served in the military or maybe for other reasons, um, make a rash decision when they're in a dark place and they end their life, and, and that if they had had the right kind of support, um, you know funding for the kind of supports that help people not become so desperate that they think, "Oh, my only out here is suicide." Um, people shouldn't be under that kind of economic pressure, and they shouldn't be under that kind of mental health pressure, but we've defunded all the kind of community supports that really help people, the safety net that helps people not, you know, fall through, uh, and, but we've given them plenty of access to, you know, a way to um, make a rash decision that they can never kind of come back from.
0: I saw mm, where that's a, true. The, no, I, I do see the logic. Did you see where the,
1: an executive at Bath Iron Works killed himself recently?
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I saw that. It was, and it, it kind of, it's, uh, it was pretty sad. It, it echoed a lot, I think, about what the, you know, uh, it, what kind of people kind of could thought could happen from such a great depression like this. You know, he lost a. Well,
2: we of, haven't really even delved into or we haven't hit the economic uh, bottom, well, uh, n- I, I think. No, I mean, the, well, I think the. We have socially and mentally.
0: Well, the economy, the, the stock market has recovered. I mean, one of the things listed in this is that he lost like uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in the stock market when it crashed. Mm-hmm. And then I think that, and then a lot of what Bath Ironworks, what they were doing is where their workers were on strike. They were making people from higher up positions to work positions that they never had before. So these guys not only had lost money, they were, they'd lost rank in positions. All of a sudden, I think it was immense amount of pressure for a lot of them and it was a really sad story i would encourage a lot of people to read it and to check up on people that they think might not be so well right now
1: you know i always think of the children first He left two little daughters behind that's something that you don't yeah. you know you don't get over easily is, is losing your dad to suicide when you're a child um i do want to say that i stand with the workers at biw i don't agree with the uh, uh, only working for navy contracts i think biw would be far stronger if it would build lots of different things and it would create more jobs but I think the workers, S6, the machinist union, walked out because they accepted contracts for the past several years with basically no salary raises and they felt like we're working with management we're gonna we're gonna hang in there and' we'll, and then when the time came to negotiate a new contract they cut their seniority they're bringing in uh, you know I mean scabs is not too strong a word for bringing strike breakers in constantly BIW is always bringing in these contractors from outside the state that don't are not under the union's uh, bargaining collective bargaining agreement. Um, that's and, they, not okay. And, no. They've been
0: taking that approach, though. Bath Ironworks, I think, had a big cultural shift quite a few years ago. I know there was a lot of people in Maine in their administrative levels and stuff like that, and they actually they started basically outsourcing and bringing in people from California.
2: For management?
0: Well, for for uh, for very high up positions, extremely like their executive level positions. There was a lot of people at one point, it was like a Maine-based company. That's really what it was. It was very big, but there was a lot of people that like these people that were, their executives lived in Yarmouth and Southern Maine and some even even upwards of Auburn-Lewiston area. These people have all been cut. They're now been replaced with people from California, big tech companies, these big CEOs that are meant to, you know, strain and squeeze every ounce, dollar, penny that the worker and that the company can make. So that's what happens when I think you have a big cultural shift, because I didn't, I don't think it started with the workers. I think it started with the executives and sort of trickle down theory. It was something that, you know, Bath Ironworks kind of, you could have seen it coming for a while and everyone kind of just ignored it because they've, they've been Bath Ironworks. Everyone, you get great pay, great benefits. Well, yeah, but if it hasn't changed and you know, the, the salaries of the, of the, of the extremely wealthy in the company have, there definitely needs to be some reevaluation because it seems like a lot of people have been unhappy with that recently. Well,
1: something that I've been working on for a while is a, a group of us campaigning to say, let's convert... Uh, the industrial capacity instead of building weapon systems which are terribly polluting do not make us safer yes they generate good jobs but we could generate even more good jobs if we built something else and they're always saying oh all your congressional representatives for Maine will say oh it's jobs it's jobs but really you'd you'd have more jobs if you built something else just recently under the pandemic the most beautiful example of a successful conversion happened because there were only two companies in the world that were making these nasal swabs to test for Mm COVID-19. One of them was in Guilford, Maine, Mm -hmm. Puritan Medical Products. So, um, you know, I think it was uh, Senator King contacted Puritan and said, could you make more of those? Could you double your production? And they said, well, we could if we had more machines. We need more of the machines that make them. So they contacted BIW and said, could you make the machines? We've got the Defense Production Act right here. We've got the federal funding for you to convert part of your capacity to doing this. Could you do it for us? Of course, with federal funding, they're like, sure, yeah, we can do that. And they delivered the machines already. It was like they turned on a dime and (laughs) produced something you know, very useful that we needed right now. So I don't really buy these arguments of, oh, we must do it this way. Even back in the 90s, BIW, before General Dynamics bought them, were, we're talking about the fact that depending on one single source of contracts, in other words, the U.S. Navy, is a precarious economic position. Mm-hmm. It's a slippery slope.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You never know. Huh? It can
2: uh, lead to you getting shut down if that's what you're dependent on.
0: It goes 360 to mm-hmm. where you're talking about, about military budgets and making up about 70%. I mean, what we had the one of the most expensive destroyers built in Bath Ironworks. I don't know how much it was. I think a billion dollars or something like that. It was something crazy. Like, it was, it was a, a, an astounding amount of money. And you look at it, and you're like, yeah, that, that was, I provided a lot of jobs. But imagine where all that money could have went, too, you know, in a sense of yeah, there's a lot more that it could have been They're done building with. Building
1: so. hospital ships, for
2: that matter. Yeah, you touched on um, somewhat defunding the military or the, um, the military and investments i suppose and and kind of turning it back towards uh i think on your website you talked about the green new deal and and putting it more towards climate and things that uh, are relevant to our future uh the cmp corridor was also mentioned um that that's going to be voted on in november correct
1: there is a referendum item it, oh, to ban the, okay, to you know not build the CMP corridor. Yes,
2: and you're opposed to it as well.
1: I am very opposed to it.
0: Mm-hmm. Like opposed to the CMP corridor? Yes, I am. And do, do you mind? From
1: start to finish. Okay, so we'll start. So at sure. the beginning, they do these mega dam projects in Canada that destroy the the uh, hunting and fishing and basically life livelihood of the indigenous people who live there. They flood an area the size of the state of Vermont to create these mega dams. Wow. You know, we live in Maine, we think we know what hydropower is. I li- I'm i from Skowhegan, there's, you know, hydropower right there. Yep. These are massive projects. And they fled- so they flood an area the size of the state of Vermont with 14 inches of water. The methane created by flooding that much vegetation area is wor- gives it the worst carbon footprint of any way of generating electricity. There's this MIT professor that came to the Army Corps of Engineer hearing, and he had his graph. the the line, you know the bar for um, hydro mega dams was off the paper literally in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, worse than coal, worse than Oh, wow. So, you know, it strikes at indigenous traditional ways of life and culture. It's essentially cultural genocide for those people. Mm -hmm. And then that power is then, uh, then they're going to cut a swath the size of the New Jersey Turnpike through the Maine woods, disturbing all kinds of animal habitat. You know, Maine is vacation land. People come here as tourists because it's super beautiful and the water is clean and you can, you know, hunt and fish and so forth and then uh, deliver the power to Massachusetts. Massachusetts voted to accept this deal because they had set some very ambitious um, goals for reducing their greenhouse gas emissions as a state, and they were told and and bought the argument that this was clean power, which it isn't, but, Mm -hmm. you know, propaganda works, so they said it's called the New England Clean Energy Connect, right? Um, So Massachusetts bought the um, power, why? Why would Maine want to cut down the Maine woods? So that, honestly, Goldman Sachs is the one that sells the bonds that makes the, all the money for uh, Hydro Quebec, and then Iberdrola, which is the Spanish company that owns CMP. That's who's going to make all the money on this deal. Mm-hmm. And what is Maine going to get for having the Maine woods cut down?
2: Um, not much, not much. Have- the problem is
0: it's just there's been so many issues that have been polarized by being either liberal or a republican regardless of how you think about it and I think when Janet Mills she went ahead and kind of almost endorsed us she's for it I think that's when everyone that was like a democrat was like oh well it's not that bad you know because I heard my friends that were like kind of against it but then we were whitewater rafting like well see those power lines they're here anyway like what's the difference and it's like well you shouldn't use that as like a justification like oh it's already here it's already shitty why don't we make it shittier you know, I don't know if that's like a good way of justifying policy. And you know, I think that's the issue though that we circle back to is that it's always it becomes so political. You know, rather than just being able to see right through the through it and trying to find the facts about it. It's
1: Well when you hear that both Paula Page and Janet Mills favor the CMP corridor, I would say the first question you should ask is, Where's the money?
0: Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. if
1: they're both in favor of it, there's big money involved, mm-hmm. and um,
2: but not necessarily for the people of Maine.
1: Not necessarily for the people of Maine at all. And once Am I right in you cut down thinking? the Maine woods, you. Can, I mean, you, we've all seen clear cuts, right? Mm-hmm. We live in Maine. Oh, certainly. Yeah, it does grow back, but not it never returns to what it was before. You know, when you cut down Virgin Forest, it's not going to regrow in 50 years.
2: No, No, and it opens up the opportunity for even more down the road. Well, you did it once, you did it twice. Why aren't you going to do it again? Or why wouldn't you be in favor of doing this? Didn't they, some of the companies that were behind um, the funding also start to pay off certain municipalities or or give donations to how can this be stopped how can this be obstructed at this point haven't too many mm, governmental agencies already received enough money to be in support of it even if the people aren't
1: my understanding is that a lot of the towns that voted for it have now backtracked and now that they really have learned more about the project they have rescinded their agreement to mm-hmm. have the Uh, project go through but i believe it's the most unifying um really issue in maine cutting across any other political um tendency that people have everywhere you go in maine you will see no cmp corridor signs and um oh yeah you're right I, i can't i'm really surprised that i'm the only candidate in the race that has come out publicly we went to the it was back in December, they, the Army Corps of Engineers had a hearing in Lewiston, and we did a press conference there, and we had a representative of the impacted community for the mega dams in Canada. We had a representative of the impacted community of the Penobscots. Uh, we had Jonathan Carter, a past Green Party uh, gubernatorial candidate who runs the Forest Ecology Network. Um, and uh, we had someone from Massachusetts talk about the Massachusetts end, but it's been really surprising to me that other candidates have not been more vocal about opposing the CMP corridor.
0: I think it's hard for anyone to oppose it because, like you said, there's a strong figure on the left and a strong figure on the right who both are in favor of it. So everyone feels kind of nervous. They're like, "Well, I'm not really in favor, but you know, the guys that I'm not really trying to go head to head with per se yet are <laughs> are in favor."
2: You had talked. Uh, you mentioned. Uh, some of the people, some of the groups that were funding it as well, or part of that economic exchange of cash, uh, When I think it's daunting to think that you'd have to be dealing with those groups as well. Am I right in thinking that at one time they wanted to, I don't know if this is five plus years ago or longer, they originally wanted to go through Vermont with the, with the, co-
1: I believe they have the permits to go through Vermont, but it would have to be all underground so that you wouldn't see it, uh-huh. and it's, of course, much more expensive, much more. so they don't really want to build it through Vermont. Did they
2: try New Hampshire, too, or that
1: would New have Hampshire, just... They New Hampshire, and New Hampshire said, no,
0: thank you. New Hampshire's live free or die trying. They were so, down to die for that. Live freeze or die. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I like where it was going, though, about big money, and I think this brings us right to why really came on here and what we're really about, which is, you know, cannabis and there's no better time to talk about big money in politics than the cannabis industry. I don't know if you're familiar with Dawson Julia at all, but he's a very, very, very big activist. He's
2: a caregiver, one of the first, or I believe the first to to open up a store in and, the state of um, Maine. and he's he, he had to fight tooth and nail on municipal uh, municipal level as well as the state level i suppose anytime you're that first person out of the gate you're going to have that path it has to be a part of it he's
0: become he's become a very big figure in the community but he's done a lot of stuff of fighting against the big money like as far as wellness connection and other big corporations that are kind of that have sued the state in a time in a time of peril really they did it you know did in a good time when there could be no organization at the courthouse for against them um and so i think uh I just wanted to know what your position is on a lot of the cannabis uh, stuff, uh, issues that are surrounding the community right now. One of the big ones is, you know, the, the residency requirement, you know, that just kind of got abolished. All of a sudden it was like, a, oh, we no longer have a residency requirement because, uh, because we got sued. You know, in Portland, it seems like it's the only municipality that's willing to kind of stick up for its its constituents in a sense. So.
1: Well, I stand with the growers because the growers are the people that got us to where we are today. Maine is very blessed in having so many farmers that uh, are—we have the youngest average age of farmers in the United States, not just cannabis growers, but Mm -hmm. farmers at all. Many people, uh, you know, invest in uh, growing and cultivating different— uh, crops, because they see that as a positive way to affect climate change, a way that they want to, you know, live and bring up their families and so forth. So, you know, I've been living in Maine since 1988, and I've seen how the growers are the people that uh, pushed for change and um, worked hard to reform the laws. You know, uh, in many ways, I think Maine is lucky because we kind of took it slow. First, they decriminalized, right? Mm-hmm. And so that, and then there was a little gap of some years, and then uh, they legalized medical marijuana. And that was, uh, then again, there was a gap of some years. And then finally, uh, recreational marijuana was legalized, what, three years ago now?
2: So, yep. Yep. you know, uh, to 2016, see, uh, but right, November of 2016. Yeah, something yep, like that, so. I'm not even sure. I you're don't,
0: right. don't so want to see
1: big corporations come in and capitalize on the work that people did. You know, they they were in the legislative halls year after year, working and, um, you know, really caring for people that so many people need medical marijuana. Um, It it addresses so many issues that we have here in Maine. My own husband has um, an inner ear problem that was giving him vertigo and really bad nausea. It was like having motion sickness just, um, and his doctor, uh, you know, gave him, like, seasickness medicine which Mm -hmm. makes you super super drowsy and Mm -hmm. you know he really didn't like it and i said you know honey uh the very first use of medical marijuana that i ever remember hearing about was helping chemo patient you know cancer patients with the nausea that goes with chemo right maybe you should give that a try so he did and it helped quite a bit and his specialist that was helping him with the inner ear problem was like hmm I didn't even think of that. Let's, <laughs> th- if this works for you, this could be really useful for a lot of my...
2: What um, type of... If you don't mind sharing, um, what, 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 how is he using... Uh, a cannabis product or he's using one. tincture my tincture. husband
1: is a self-employed woodworker he's been a woodworker all his life he mm-hmm. builds like spiral stairs and cabinet work and oh, things nice. and he uh has chronic respiratory irritation from all that wood dust so he can't smoke at all yeah
0: that's, mm-hmm. an option. Um, <laughs> that's not
1: an option for him so no know, we
2: found a, a lot of patients that we were dealing with when uh our experience we had been in storefronts in the early going up most recent experience being in storefronts. And uh, there were a great deal of patients who were coming in in the early times who were of various ages. It it didn't much matter. It's a little less of that now uh, from, but maybe that's because I'm not in a storefront as much anymore, but they would come in and they'd talk to you half an hour, 45 minutes. They wanted to know, they they shared their issues, their physical ailments, or, or, or perhaps it was mental ailments as well. And what best path? When We constantly would go towards tinctures, sometimes just CBD,
0: mm-hmm. sometimes
2: a THC, and, or a combination of both. And edibles for people who were uh, undecided was also, you know, having trouble sleeping. Mm-hmm. A low dosage of edibles was a great way, especially for people who don't want to smoke. There's, you know, there's always going to be two parties. So those who don't mind smoking will want to, and those who don't. So find the alternative. And I think there's really good medicine in the medical program right now. I think um, one
1: of the things I'm kind of wondering is, okay, so we've legalized um, recreational marijuana, but really no provision has been made by the main state government to have retail outlets, right? They're dragging their feet on making it possible for the law to actually be fulfilled. Well, right now, uh, the state and the municipalities are hurting badly for revenue. Mm -hmm. The pandemic has just crushed so many businesses, and the kind of sales tax and uh, revenue that the state government operates on, it, it just isn't coming in. They're waiting to see if Congress is going to offer them some relief. You know, we, we hope they will eventually, but still waiting. And here it is the end of July. Um, if they had gone ahead and really moved forward with, okay, the voters have spoken. It's legal as a recreational drug. You know, alcohol has been legal as a recreational drug forever. We all know it has a lot of bad effects, but it doesn't stop uh, Hannaford from selling liquor. No. Um, why haven't we moved into... Um, allowing people to pursue this line of business and get the revenue so the you know homeless people can get some the people experiencing homelessness are getting like no services because there's no revenue or but it's already been talked about
0: oh, that no, sure it already has already been talked about how a lot of the a lot of the tax dollars that were supposed to be basically kept in a slush fund and used for certain expenses things like that that came up they have been constantly, they, the, you can ask Dawson, I'd like to find out, I should have figured this out before, but it's constantly pulled from and used for uh, necessities and things that it's never been designated for for at all. So whatever the main people voted it in, whatever we said, we want our tax dollars to go to that, it's not even happening. They, they, they have completely rerouted for the most part, and he, he highlighted that at one point and said, you know, a lot of the tax dollars aren't going where they're supposed to be at all. But it brings me to another thing, too, where we have all this revenue. We've seen, like you said, it's helped a lot of people with rehab or like rehabbing from certain ailments and stuff like that. But yet one of the biggest things, which is addiction in the state of Maine, it's a very big topic as far as to a lot of higher, a lot of higher drugs. When we were working in the storefronts, we noticed that a lot of people that were recovering used medical marijuana from opioids as mm-hmm. a yep. way to recover. Mm-hmm. But they could never have been told by their, by their you know, rehab clinician to come in and try marijuana. But a lot of them have used it to get off opioids, mm-hmm. so I think it shows like the big, the big gap between like the federal and state level because a lot of these places just can't recommend it because if it even gets out, they will lose funding and lose you know things like that. So it shows that there's a big problem. I think with
2: I think the state would need to embrace the idea of prescribing medical products, whether it's hemp or THC, to some degree to people as an alternative to. Um, what is now uh, treatments for, say, opioids or other drug addictions. And opioid
1: um, addiction is a huge problem. That and the CMP corridor, in my opinion, are the two issues that cut across all income levels, political parties, regions of Maine. Mm-hmm. Everyone in Maine has been touched by the opioid epidemic one way or the
2: other. Mm-hmm. Oh, certainly, yeah, whether in your family or, yep, yeah, it has. Uh, one of the questions... Or, or to back up what Evan was saying and not to get away from the opo- opioid. But um, one of the questions we had let some people know that we were going to be talking to you today, a company called Derigo Dank uh, mentioned in 2019, the main can- uh, medical cannabis program was responsible for generating uh, $111 million in, in taxable revenue for the state. And if you were elected, uh, what proactive steps would you take to protect the main cannabis jobs and our, and our very successful program. And he speaks about the medical program. I could probably back this up a little bit by saying, <clears throat> I know that, uh, Susan Collins is, is not uh, pro can, uh, pro marijuana, pro cannabis. She's more pro, uh, hemp and T, uh, and t-, t, uh, C-C-B-D. CBD. I'm sorry. And CBD. Um, and uh, Sarah uh, Gideon has um, voted positively for the the marijuana act that was passed a few years back she had also put in uh, place as a uh, state rep or, or appointed rep uh, Hannah King who's done an extremely effective and good job um, you know for litigation but she does meet with some uh, resistance because it some in the cannabis industry feel as though she represents larger entities. And where the medical programs are, we're talking, about, um, we're talking about businesses that are under 10 people. They're not going to probably have this chance to exist in the medical uh, program because it's inevitably in every state that it's gone to before. When adult use opens up and recreational use opens up, it's only a matter of time before your medical program kind of makes a
0: exit from the scene. Well, has anyone seen the provisional licenses? No. I looked on the website. Let me tell you, there's a lot of companies I don't think any of us have ever heard about. And they could just be like, a, you know, I, n- I know not every company lists there. Like, you know, our LLC is not main podcast LLC. So right. th- there is stuff like that. But, there, you know, it also creeps into your head. as like, because who is that? An outside mm-hmm. company you know and yeah we're a worried lot about the outside right interest
2: now. taking away main jobs main way of life and livelihood
1: i think that's a realistic fear because mm-hmm. of whether where there's money to be made the uh, corporations will creep in you know obviously feder the federal government should legalize marijuana mm-hmm. it's long overdue
2: do you think that's p- possible in the next five years
1: What's, tell me the last uh, family in the White House that didn't have a pot smoker in it. I would go back to Gerald Ford think, on that one. Possibly, the, possibly even the Kennedys. Um, you know, Oh, i got to
2: believe the Kennedys might have had one there. Yeah, they definitely <laughs> smoked weed. those people. I have to it's believe it. It's way past
1: time. Uh, you know, the criminalization of drugs of any kind has really been a very racist policy that has led directly to mass incarceration of people of color and been a way of keeping them poor, uh, unable to vote, Mm -hmm. uh, because if you're convicted, you know, there are people in serving long sentences for possession of a joint Mm. 30 years ago, Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, expunging those kind of uh, convictions and decarcerating... uh, Drug offenses. Yeah, the war
0: on drugs has been—it was extremely disproportionate, and who it affected. You can't even get into it on the show because money just to be made, the, and there was oppression. Well, I mean, and look—you have like you have uh, old advisors from Richard Nixon that said that they couldn't make being black, homosexual, and a hippie illegal, but what they could do is make everything they enjoy doing. Illegal, you know, and that's what and that's where it really should seal the deal Like if this dude's coming out here and saying that I mean why would he say that now? He's not making no money out of that. He's just looking like a bigger bigot than he was So I think you know like that's just the point of education, you know, it all comes back to everything We talked about comes back to education. So mm-hmm.
1: I don't know exactly what was behind it But I saw in the news yesterday in Farmington mm-hmm. there was a drug enforcement administration the FBI and another federal agency that I can't quite remember Probably right the now ATF, I uh, swarming on a, a big pot business. Yeah. 60,000.
2: Yeah, they were, they were owned by the same, uh, individual, I believe. Um, and I don't know about you one guys, but the cultivation. first thing
1: I thought of is how the federal government's been sending those border patrol and, and department of Homeland security, uh, allegedly police that are dressed like gi joe and camo and the Mm -hmm. pentagon isn't liking that very much into portland oregon Mm -hmm. into the streets of portland oregon to like you know tear gas the mayor who's the police commissioner last (laughs) night overnight um and i really thought of federal overreach and i really thought of
0: well federal overreach just happened the same thing what you were just talking about just happened on the main highway right between sherman and um uh was it sherman yeah sherman and medway i'm sorry yeah, you're yeah right. Sher- Sherman and Medway and there was an ice ice border checkpoint and they confiscated 3 pounds from a local caregiver and I'm not sure if he's going to be facing any legal prosecution I would assume he might be because he was going he was bringing his product to a store legally he had a trip ticket and everything yep. but because they were in Maine and they so happened to set up a roadblock and he was doing what he does on an everyday basis probably legally conducting his business they stopped and he could now become a felon from it and he got what uh, value right now, of some good of some good product at store levels anywhere from what twenty two to twenty five probably
2: or higher or
0: yeah. higher. So uh, you just took, uh, what? 25, uh, you just took twenty five, twenty two, twenty five, almost eight thousand dollars out of a guy's pocket in a time like this. On top of it, where he's depending on that probably, mm-hmm.
1: and allegedly they're looking for uh, immigrants that don't have proper documentation. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. why they they're stopping people. They're
0: up in Rangeley They're up in Rangeley Lake, uh, Lake, like Moose Look Magantic. You know, and it's almost like it's, it's crazy, you know, because I don't think uh, I don't think anyone really cares that much enough about it. Like I would rather just I feel like a lot of my friends and stuff would rather they, they feel intimidated, you know, even if they are. It's like because those guys have almost the utmost amount of saying power. And I think it's pretty universally agreeable that a lot of people are just like get out of our state, get out of our way, you know, stop harassing us and anyone else because they harass everyone. And that's what it just proved what just happened on I-95 Southbound between Sherman and Medway is that the federal government does not care they're in it to grab anyone they can most of the time. So,
2: Yeah, it's always going to cause issues when a state is a little bit more progressive than the federal level is. And us being on the border, international border, um, you're going to have those issues come up. You're going to have that, those problems. There were raids that uh, occurred in California a year or two ago where they were looking for illegal operations that were functioning in the medical program and the recreational I don't think uh, I don't think we're going to get peppered with those type of actions like what happened two days ago, but I think they will occur. Um, I'd, I'm not sure of the justification for it. I mean, we can't say that it was sound business practice either, or, but we can't say it wasn't, you know, it's not for us to speak on. Uh, and, and that will always occur when you come from a background that wasn't necessarily given an opportunity to flourish up until recently. So
1: it's one of the most interesting things about our form of government is the, um, <coughs> you know, the balance and the give and take between the federal government, the state government and local government. Mm-hmm. And many people love local control. Mm-hmm. You know, and many people think government is more responsive to the actual values and needs of the people when you have more local control. And I hear that argument, and, and, and I agree with it up to a point, but then you get into situations like uh, during the civil rights movement where desegregation of public schools, public universities was blocked by state governments. Um, and the federal government stepped in and said, nope, you know, the, the Constitution says this, and we're going to fulfill the Constitution. So it kind of goes back and forth. You know, I've been working for a very small school district, and in many ways I think local control of schools has not served Maine school children well. They would be better off be- with a well-funded state-level, um, you know, school board. That yeah, I was going to ask state or federal education. level. And years ago, Governor uh, John Baldacci wanted to um, make a few big school districts and I was all excited at the time. I was like, wow, I'm going to be in a school district with like four paper mills. We're (laughs) going to finally have a tax base. Yeah. I'd been teaching someplace where there is just really no tax base to support the schools. Um, it didn't happen because, again, the the big school districts were like, we don't want, we don't want our poor relatives. We got a good thing going here. We don't, yeah. want, we don't want to be in a district with them. Cape
0: Elizabeth and Falmouth. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, we're well, not even, taking even on nobody. Even
1: Scott did not want anything to do with my school district. Um, so you know, it's an interesting dynamic. And people that are thinking about government and care about democracy and care about the people's voice in government, they're going to be discussing these issues and weighing the pros and cons on each side, so. Mm-hmm.
2: Hey, you're right in talking about local government and, and state government, and then we're talking federal. Uh, in the way that it's impacted the um, the cannabis industry currently is um, if I was a cultivator and I set up in Lewiston, but Lewiston, and, and I was um, a cultivator on a medical level, um, but I wanted to go into the adult use rec- recreational market, um, if Lewiston has... Approved the idea or the concept that you can become a a, a recreational adult use, uh, then you can service and offer your product to other adult use stores. But if they don't approve it, that means you need to stay medical, and and it's really just a question of of uh, finances, I believe, or where the city is at, or the town district uh, where they're at in their growth or or openness to to dealing with cannabis we've seen a lot of changes and I think with another year or two, there'll be more changes on municipal levels, a little bit more of embracing. I don't blame them for sort of um, slowing the process down. And I'm, and I'm in hindsight, okay with that, that things have slowed down to a certain degree um, because we needed to know if we were ready as an industry to perform, to, to meet expectations, to regulate ourselves. And there's still some of that going on to this day, but I think going into adult use, it, it, <clears throat> I think we're closer now than ever to being prepared. Um, but the, the lift of the four-year um, caregiver or the medical program being offered, uh, adult use being offered to the medical program um, to in-state compliancy, um, that expires June of 2021. And so at that point, regardless of what action is taken between now and then to either curb the outside interest or not, so that gives Mainers about a less than a year now. We're talking about 11 months, or, and, it, and it could slow down to 10 months and nine months, or it, it can shorten, I'm sorry. For what? Where Mainers, if, uh, if this legal battle is, is won by Dawson's group to, to uh, suing the state of Maine,
0: Right, but it's, already, but it's already lost for the time being.
2: For the time being, it's lost.
0: Right. So, I mean, like, in, in the time being. So the can out-of-staters
2: at this point? Oh,
0: yeah. They already have. They, they can. Already. Oh, yeah. It's, okay. already, it's It's gone. Maine dropped it. Then Dawson has to sue them to put it back on. They can't sue them and say, well, in the time period, can you keep it? No. They, so
2: anybody who would like to do business, even if they're out-of-state, can do business right now?
0: Yeah, and probably the thing is, too, even when Dawson reversed, I would have to assume that they're going to be grandfathered in. Mm-hmm. or something like that.
2: So now's the time to act. So oh, yeah, and I think there is, it.
0: because if you look at provisional licenses, there's a lot of licenses that, like, I don't know what they are, like companies like ST36 LLC, you know, mm-hmm. like, and you, I've, I've, I haven't gone through trouble looking any of them up, but I will. You will. I will. <laughs>
2: so. I think that's why we were, uh, yeah, that, that was one of the things. There's a lot of income, a lot of taxable income to come from this. I do believe, though, the, the threat is going to be for the medical program, and that's always been where the smaller jobs are.
0: Um, I know that there's a variety of other issues that people can inquire about uh, with you and chat with you, get in contact with your team, donate, become a member of the Green Party, become a member of the Lisa Savage campaign. Where can I get that information? Where would I seek that out at?
1: Yeah, thanks for asking. Our website is Lisa4, spelled out F-O-R, Maine, M-A-I-N-E, dot org. And if people want to volunteer, we'd love to have you on the team. Um, You can go to the page that says, I'd like to volunteer. You can make donations there and look at our issues page or our press releases to find out more about where we stand on issues. Love to hear from you. And um, we're in it to win it. It's ranked choice voting, so we really have a shot.
0: Thank you so much, Lisa, for coming on. Yes, uh, good luck to you. We look forward to tracking the progress throughout. And I assume uh, this won't be the last time we're hearing from you. So thank you for coming on. Thank
1: you. Thank you for having me. All
0: right. Thanks.
1: It was fun.
2: Well, I left Kentucky back in '49. And what's left Kentucky back in '49? And what's left Kentucky back in '49? And went to Detroit working on assembly line? The first year they had me the wheels on Cadillacs. Every day, watched them beauties roll by, and sometimes I'd hang my head and cry. Cause I always wanted me one that was long and black. One, one piece at a time, and it didn't cost me a dime. You'll know it's me when I come through your town. I'm gonna ride around in style. I'm gonna drive everybody wild. Cause I'll have the only one there is around. Uh, yeah, Red Rider, this is the Cottonmouth in the Psycho Billy Cadillac.
0: Come on.